Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Happy Monday to everyone who is listening the day this episode drops. And happy whatever day it is to everyone listening whenever and to everyone who has forgotten that it may, in fact, actually be Monday. I don't know what day it is anymore. But today is a comedy episode, and comedy episodes drop on Mondays, so I do know that this episode will drop on a Monday. So the comedy we have today is Aristophanes' The Frogs. This play premiered in 405 BCE at Lanaya, where it won first prize. And it was so popular that it was also performed at Dionysia. It's the only ancient Greek play that we know was performed more than once. So it was not only beloved by the judges, it was beloved by the audience. And honestly, it is still pretty funny. It has some straight-up classic humor. It has farce. It has satire. It has straight-up speaking truth to power, if Aeschylus and Euripides can be considered power. I'm using four plays by Aristophanes with translations by William Aerosmith, Richmond Lattimore, and Douglas Parker for this episode. And I would tell you which of those three men translated the frogs, but there is no indication within the text as to who is responsible for what. The copyright is all for Aerosmith, so I'm very confused by the attribution of this text. But it's the copy that I own. It's what I used in school, so it's what I'm using now. The one thing that jumped out to me in the translation is that the god of the underworld is referred to as Pluto, which is the Latin name for Hades. And that made me wonder just when the name Pluto started to be used. And while Wikipedia isn't always the most reputable of sources, there is a very well-cited article on Pluto mythology where I found the answer. Yes, the name Pluto was used by the Greeks, or rather Pluton with an N, was used by the Greeks, which was then Latinized into Pluto. Pluton is the more kindly aspect of Hades. And since Hades was commonly used as a place name for the underworld, calling the, the god Pluton made it easier to keep straight whether one was referring to the person or the place. So yes, Pluto is still technically Latin, but what is being translated as Pluton and not Hades. And now that I've gone on about Pluto's name, I suppose I should mention the rest of the characters in this play. Our leading man is none other than the god of theater himself, Dionysus. He is attended by his slave, Xanthius. And this star-packed play also features Heracles, Charon, Euripides, Aeschylus, and of course Pluto. There are the usual servants, including one who is a corpse and two with names, Iacos, the janitor of Hades, and Plathane, a maid. And the chorus is, well, different in this play than we've ever seen before. The chorus is homogenous in each of its entrances, but it's never the same group twice. So it is frogs at one point, and it's initiates into the Eleusinian Mysteries another time, and just straight up a group of dead people in Hades another time. It is in this way the most modern use of the chorus that we have seen so far. And with that background, we'll take a short break. When the play opens, Dionysus and Xanthius enter. Dionysus is wearing a yellow robe with a lion skin over it. You see Heracles wears a lion skin, and Dionysus is trying to look just like his half-brother. The two discuss the best joke with which to begin the play, and then they argue over who should carry the bags. This is a recurring theme. 
Dionysus thinks Xanthius isn't moving me fast enough, so Xanthius suggests Dionysus should carry the bags. But what good is a slave if he doesn't do, you know, all the manual labor stuff? And another thing you'll notice as the play goes along is that Xanthius is clearly the more intelligent of these two characters. They have arrived at Heracles' door. Heracles thinks that Dionysus looks hilarious and spends the scene trying not to laugh and failing. Dionysus explains that all of the great poets have died and he is bemoaning the state of the theater. He has decided to remedy this by going to the underworld to bring Euripides back from the dead. Heracles asks about a number of still living poets, all of which Dionysus rejects for one reason or another. Since Heracles has gone to the underworld before, Dionysus is hoping that he can provide some guidance. Heracles offers a variety of suggestions, all of which entail Dionysus offing himself, which isn't exactly what he'd had in mind. He finally convinces Heracles to describe a route that doesn't require being dead, and Heracles finally concedes. And I'd tell you what he describes, but since that's the next part of the play, we'll get to it shortly. Dionysus and Xanthius set off again, arguing about the bags. There's a brief interlude in which Dionysus tries to hire a corpse to replace Xanthius, but he's not willing to pay enough, and the corpse goes off to the underworld alone. Xanthius is stuck having to carry everything again. Charon rows his boat on stage. He agrees to let Dionysus board, but refuses to let a slave board, so Xanthius is forced to go on foot the long way around the lake. He exits. Dionysus, meanwhile, is pressed into service as a rower. Charon tells him it will be easy if he strokes with the music. It's a swan song, he says, except instead of swans, it's frogs who are singing. And the chorus enters in their first guise as frogs, which you'll recall is the title of this play. Now, do you know I am a very model of a modern major general from the Pirates of Penzance? Well, here's the second verse. I know our mythic history, King Arthur's and Sir Caradox. I answer hard acrostics, I've a pretty taste for paradox. I quote in elegiacs all the crimes of Heliogabalus, and chronics I can floor peculiarities parabolus. I can tell undoubted Raphael's from Jared Dow's and Zophanes. I know the croaking chorus from the frogs of Aristophanes. If you've heard this song and wondered what the croaking chorus is, this is it. Brekkekex, coax, coax. Frankly, the frogs are rather annoying, and they get into an argument with Dionysus. Or rather, Dionysus gets into an argument with the frogs. They really couldn't care less what Dionysus thinks of them. But Dionysus gets across the lake, and the chorus of frogs exits, as does Charon in the boat. And Dionysus and Xanthius meet up again. Dionysus asks Xanthius if he saw the criminals they had been warned about. Xanthius is surprised that Dionysus hasn't. Then they look at the audience and realize that he had just been looking in the wrong direction. And yet this play won first prize and was performed a second time. They hear a monster, which Dionysus identifies as Impusa, and there's much jostling of position as they try to determine exactly where the sound of her is coming from. Behind them? Well, then Dionysus shall lead. In front of them? And again, maybe Xanthius should walk in front, and so on. They make it past her, and the chorus returns, this time as initiates. They sing a hymn to Demeter, Persephone, and Iacus. Dionysus asks them for directions to Pluto's house. They are put out that he's interrupted their rights, but they still point out the door to him before they exit. Dionysus waffles over what he should do. Does he knock as himself, as Heracles? Maybe this wasn't a good idea after all. Xanthius convinces him that since he wears the garb of Heracles, he should act with the spirit of Heracles. 
Dionysus knocks and Iacos enters, but does, answers, but does not come on stage. Thinking Dionysus is Heracles, he berates him for his bad he behavior when he was last in the underworld. Dionysus does not relish another encounter, so he convinces Xanthius to swap clothes. A maid then enters and absolutely fawns over Xanthius, whom she believes to be Heracles. She goes back inside. Well, of course Dionysus is jealous of this reception, so he tells Xanthius to trade clothes again. As they do, the chorus enters for the third time in their third guise as the population of Hades. The hostess and Plathane enter and are furious with Heracles, who is, of course, now actually Dionysus. So, of course, Dionysus again convinces Xanthius to swap clothes. Iacos returns and gets into an argument with Xanthius, who really plays up the Heracles of it all. Before it can come to blows, though, Dionysus announces that he's a god. Iacos says that the only way to determine if he's a god is to see if he can float. So if he weighs the same amount as a duck, oh, wait, that's if he's a witch. No, that's not what Iacos says. The only way to determine is to whip both men, and the one who feels no pain is the god. The ensuing interlude consists of both Dionysus and Xanthius trying to pretend that they feel no pain. But Iacos is finally convinced that they can pass. All of the actors exit, and the chorus is left alone. And what happens when the chorus is left alone? Well, here's something weird. The text that I have indicates that an earlier section, back when they were initiates, is the parabasis. But if that's the case, this is definitely a second parabasis. And the focus of their song is what it means to be a good citizen and, more importantly, what rights a citizen should have. And it gets really pointed at times. And it's a very definite critique of the current political state in Athens. And again, this play still won first prize and was performed again. Iacos and Xanthius enter and discuss what has been going on. Iacos explains this custom in Hades. The best of each fine art or skilled profession gets to have dinner in the great hall and holds the chair for that art or profession. Sounded all like academia today. Anyway, Aeschylus has held the chair for the tragic poets, but now that Euripides is dead, there is a challenger for that chair. And yes, Sophocles is also dead, but he hasn't cared about trying to unseat Aeschylus. Pluto has decreed that there be a contest between Aeschylus and Euripides, and since the god of theater himself is currently visiting the underworld, who better to judge? They exit, and Dionysus, now dressed as himself alone, Pluto, Aeschylus, and Euripides enter. And we have now reached the Agon. Aeschylus and Euripides critique each other's work, and they get into the details. Who uses meter better? Who uses language better? Seriously, they could be writing dissertations on each other's work. And even if you don't know the original plays that are quoted, this section can still be pretty funny. And you should be familiar with all of the Aeschylus plays quoted because we already read all of them in Greek tragedy. Ultimately, and for no particularly good reason, Dionysus awards the chair to Aeschylus, but goes on to say that Aeschylus is the poet that Athens needs right now, not Euripides. Sophocles agrees to keep the chair warm for Aeschylus because he may not have cared that Aeschylus had the chair, but the thought of Euripides having it is more than he can bear. The chorus sings one final prayer that Aeschylus will have a good journey, and that his return to the world of the living will have its desired effect. And that basically is the Frogs of Aristophanes and a good spot for a short break.
this play is an onion. It has so many layers. There's the straight up humor of it. There's the parody of it. And then there's the critical analysis of it. And by that, I don't mean the critical analysis we might do. I mean, the play itself is a critical analysis of Greek theater and poetry, ancient to us, but contemporary to Aristophanes. It is all very meta. It is interesting to note that the winningest Greek tragedian is not a character, and that's likely because he was still alive when Aristophanes started writing. He was also a really nice guy, and everyone liked him, and making fun of him just wasn't as much fun as making fun of Euripides and Aeschylus. I did mention the date of the play, but I failed to put it in context. Um, This play, like everything we've seen from Aristophanes so far, was written during the Peloponnesian War. And we can see that impact on the play. Dionysus thinks the people of Athens need a good playwright, and one of the reasons is the war. After all, we have already seen how Aeschylus shows the emotional complexity that war causes. Art speaks to life. Athens needed good art. One of the hard things about the pandemic we're currently living through is the impact on art. Theaters are closed. Movie theaters are closed. No live music performances. Think about it. Every night, every night, the Metropolitan Opera is streaming one of their live and HD recordings. And it looks like they plan on keep doing so. The National Theatre and the Globe Theatre in the UK are both offering free streams of their productions. Not quite at the pace of the mat, but still. Movies are skipping the cinemas and going straight to streaming. The Hamilton movie that was supposed to come out next year is going to come out this summer online. We need art. I'm keeping my sanity by taking ballet classes via Zoom. We need art. And that's what this play is about. Art shows us how to be human. Athens needs a good playwright to get them through the war. Well, you know, in addition to straight-up criticism of the works of Aeschylus and Euripides, play's also about, about that. What do you think? What is the art form you turn to in a time of crisis? Please come talk art, literary criticism, and funny jokes over at the blog. The link is in the show notes. And you might also find another fun thing or two if you drop by this episode's post. On Wednesday, we'll go over book book 13 of the Iliad more than halfway through. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.